Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. We're a little bit behind um, time-wise this morning, so it may not be the best idea to talk about food. Um, some of you may, uh, may already be getting hungry, but um, <clears throat> later this week some of you will be enjoying what perhaps will be the biggest meal that you'll have all year. And you might spend more time planning and preparing that meal than any other meal that you'd have all year. And of course, I'm talking about the Thanksgiving feast uh, that's coming up on this Thursday. But not only will we plan the meal, but we'll also be very intentional to make arrangements about who we will be sharing that meal with, uh, whether that's close family members or distant relatives uh, or friends or the less privileged in area soup kitchens or food shelters. Um, And the reason that we'll spend time making those arrangements for who we're going to share the meal with is because we recognize that there's a close connection between our meals and our relationships, a connection between who we eat with and our relationships. It's because of this that meals have always played an important role in society in expressing existing fellowship and in facilitating connections between people. Meals express existing fellowship and facilitate Connections, And that's why we see business people dining with their clients to form those connections. It's why we see food involved when covenant unions are entered into at weddings and families are brought together to celebrate those marriages. Not to mention the importance of day-to-day ordinary meals shared by family members. A meal basically expresses this sentiment. I welcome you and I want to be with you and I want to know you. That's what an intentionally shared meal conveys. I welcome you. So it shouldn't surprise us to see that meals have also played a significant role in redemptive history. I mean, think about humanity's fall from grace in the Garden of Eden involved eating. Jacob stealing the birthright from Esau involved a deceptive meal. And the Israelites were commanded to commemorate their deliverance from their bondage in Egypt through the Passover meal to be celebrated annually. And so because of this, Israel had a real strong sense of the connection between relationships and meals, those that they ate with. So much so that for Israel, meals became a a kind of barometer for their moral and ethnic purity because meals became a time to separate themselves and distinguish themselves from the immoral and the unclean and the impure and the non-Jews, which would help us understand why the Jews of Jesus' day took such offense at him in the New Testament. It's because Jesus ate with the wrong people. Jesus shared meals with the wrong people. We see this develop very early in Jesus' ministry. Uh, I don't have this text printed up there, actually. Early in Mark's gospel, chapter 2, we read of this tension developing about the meals. We read, and as he reclined at his table, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? Now, rather than refute the accusation, verse 17 tells us that when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus' response to this question is he came for the sake of sinners. He came to welcome them. And Jesus' meals recorded throughout the Gospels show this, including the meal that we'll enjoy here in just a few minutes, and including a meal with Jesus 
that we read about in John chapter 21, verses 4 through 17. So I want to read that with you this morning. John chapter 21, verses 4 through 17. If you have your Bible, you can follow along. If you don't have a Bible, um, there should be a Bible in one of the chairs in front of you. Uh, But let's read this passage together and let's stand for the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And so they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, which is a reference to John himself, therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. And other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. And so Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. Now this was the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. This is the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. You can be seated. Now, briefly, I'll be as brief as I can, uh, I want to point out three features of this meal that also are present in the other meals that Jesus has throughout the Gospels, including the meal that we'll celebrate in just a little bit. And those three features that we see in this meal and so many of other Jesus meals are first, Jesus invites failures. Jesus invites failures. Secondly, Jesus offers forgiveness. And then finally, Jesus restores fellowship. So let's start with Jesus invites failures. This episode in John 21 starts with some of his disciples out fishing. Now, you'll recall that that's what many of them were by trade. Jesus comes to them and he asks them this question that confronts them with what? Failure. They'd been out all night, hadn't caught anything, we read in verse 3. So Jesus comes to them and says, have you any fish? And they say no. But Jesus has come to address an even deeper failure. He's come to really address Peter's failure. It's important to know at this point, this episode happens after the resurrection. Peter already knows that Jesus is alive and risen. So why is he out fishing? Well, perhaps Peter's just gone back to what he knows. And perhaps he's gone back to what he knows is because He doesn't think there's anything else for him to do. Maybe in Peter's mind, he's disqualified 
to be in service to the king because he's denied Jesus. Not once, not twice, but three times he denied him. Now, baseball's been around for a while, but I'm pretty sure baseball wasn't around at the time that Jesus and Peter lived. But Peter still seems to get this rule. Three strikes, you're out. There are no fourth chances. Now, all the disciples had failed Jesus at the time of his trial and his crucifixion, but Peter, in an especially shameful way, failed the Lord through his denials. He isn't worthy of Jesus. Peter isn't worthy of Jesus. You ever feel that way? Do you ever feel so guilty, so ashamed, so unclean, so unworthy, like such a failure that you are now ineligible and barred from service to the king and even fellowshipping with Jesus because of your sin? You ever feel that way? Well, I could say to you this morning that you're wrong. You're made in God's image. God loves you. You are worthy. But the harsh truth of the matter is, you're not worthy. And I'm not worthy. We're all moral failures. We are guilty. We are contaminated with sin. We are covered with shame. And so none of us are worthy. And that might not sound very encouraging this morning, right? You're not worthy. But the key is to not focus on yourself. The key is to focus on Jesus and who he invites. Focus on Jesus and who he welcomes. Jesus invites failures like Peter and like the rest of the disciples and like me and like you by saying in verse 12, come, come have breakfast. Come and partake of the meal that I've prepared. And in inviting failures, Jesus also offers them forgiveness. Where do we see this in this passage? Well, we detect hints of it. And the first hint of it comes in verse 9 when we read it. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Now, there's only one other place in the Bible where this word for charcoal is used. And it's three chapters earlier in the Gospel of John in chapter 18, verse 18. The context is in the courtyard where Peter's denials occurred. This is what we read in John 18, 18. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Now research has suggested that smell has the power to evoke strong, vivid memories more than any other senses, which might explain why I think of my grandpa every time I smell cigar smoke because he smokes cigars. I, I'm taken back to my grandparents' house when I smell cigar smoke. So it's likely that this smell of charcoal would have evoked in Peter a memory of his shame and of his sin, of denying Jesus. And that might sound cruel, right, for Jesus to do, but Jesus is not rubbing Peter's face in it here. Jesus is giving a new and better memory for Peter associated with charcoal. Not a memory of his failure, but a memory of Jesus' forgiveness. Because right after they enjoy this meal together, Jesus asks a question to Peter. Not once, not twice, but three times. Because what Jesus is doing is allowing Peter to affirm his love for Jesus in place of his three denials. 
And the reason that Jesus can allow Peter to affirm his love for him in place of his denials is because of the forgiveness that Jesus offers through his own death. Jesus has already atoned for Peter's sins and his failures. And as a result, Peter's failures no longer have to define him. Peter doesn't have to be defined by the failure and the shame that that brings. Instead, Peter can be defined by his relationship to Jesus and the honor and forgiveness that he brings. And the same is true for you and me. We are moral failures, but we don't have to be defined by our failures. If we turn to Jesus and receive the forgiveness that he offers through his blood, instead we can be defined by our relationship with him. And so as it turns out, in Jesus, there is a fourth strike, and a fifth, and a sixth, and a seventh, and an eighth, and so on, because Jesus offers forgiveness for failures. But more than that, Peter isn't just forgiven. Peter is restored to full fellowship. He is restored to the full blessings of fellowship. So that's the third thing we can look at. Jesus restores fellowship. Notice that Peter doesn't just get to state his love for Jesus in the place of his denials. Jesus recommissions him every time. Feed my sheep. Tend my flock. See, not only is Peter's failure not an insurmountable obstacle for Jesus to deliver him from the condemnation that he deserves, it's not an obstacle to re-enlisting Peter in service to the king, to be used further in Jesus' mission, to be restored to the task of representing Jesus and his interests. And again, what's true of Peter is true of you and true of me. Jesus doesn't just come and forgive us. He restores us to the full blessing of fellowship so that we can again represent him and reflect him in our lives and in our ministries to reflect the power of his transforming grace in our life, in our ministries, to reflect his holiness and his truth, to reflect his grace and his forgiveness, to reflect the depths of his love in our life and in our ministry. I want you to note as well that this restored fellowship is not predicated on an intellectual understanding or an academic comprehension about Jesus. Peter isn't given here a test of his theological orthodoxy in this encounter. Not that theological orthodoxy doesn't matter, but what Jesus addresses as first importance is this, do you love me? That's the question he poses to Peter. He aims directly at the heart, do you love me? Not have you failed, and if so, how much? We all have, lots. Do you love me, he asks. Not do you think you're worthy of me, None of us are. Do you love me? Not are you willing to serve me as a way to atone for all of your failures. None of us can do that. None of us need do that. Because Jesus has already offered himself for our atonement. Do you love me? See, that's the question for all of us, ultimately, this morning. Do you love Jesus? And if you do, you will admit that you're a moral failure and that you have a sinful heart, but you will not allow those failures to define you because you will receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers through his blood, and you will seek to live a life of restored fellowship and obedient service in the mission of the risen, conquering king who is a friend to sinners because he says to sinners and to tax collectors and to failures, 
as an expression of his immeasurable love and abounding grace. Come and eat. Enjoy fellowship with me. And for those of us that will respond by faith, we will respond by living a life of thanksgiving and expressing from our hearts to him daily. Thank you. Thank you. Let's pray before we sing and before we prepare to come forward for the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you that you have sent your son Jesus for failures, to forgive them and to restore fellowship with them. We thank you for this meal that we will be enjoying in just a moment that reminds us of the truth of the restored fellowship we have with you. May we look to you by faith with hearts full of thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen.